This is Ethan Butte, co-author of Human-Centered Communication, a business case against digital pollution. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Ethan Butte to talk about the book he has co-authored with Stephen Passanelli, Human-Centered Communication, a Business Case Against Digital Pollution, published by Fast Company Press. Ethan Butte is the Chief Evangelist at BombBomb, a video email sales and marketing software platform, is host of the Customer Experience Podcast, and co-author of Rehumanize Your Business, How Personal Videos Accelerate Sales and Improve Customer Experience which was featured on episode 239 of the Marketing Book Podcast in 2019. Ethan has collected and told personal video success stories in hundreds of blog posts and dozens of webinars, podcasts, and stage presentations, and in countless conversations, he's sent more than 12,000 video messages himself. And prior to joining BombBomb, he spent a dozen years leading marketing inside local television stations in Chicago, Grand Rapids, and Colorado Springs. And, interesting fact, his first real job out of college was driving a school bus for Microsoft. Ethan, congratulations on human-centered communication, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much. Really happy to be here. Thank you for reading the book. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited for this conversation. Yes. So got to explain what were you, you were driving a school bus for Bill Gates. Is that, is that what it was at Microsoft? Gosh, I don't know that he had any awareness at all of this project. It was put together by a woman that ran uh, the uh, a market in the upper Midwest. And she just had this idea of you know, how can we get people engaged in the software? And so had this plan to gut a 70 seat school bus, uh, turn it into a 10 station mobile computer lab. This was in the mid to late nineties, like 96, 97. So no mobile internet had a server in the back, had, uh, you know, all the office software had, you know, the encyclopedia was still on uh, CD ROM or DVD or whatever that was. Uh, we had some kids games and stuff. So I drove it to CompUSA, Best Buy, schools, museums, retailers, went to Wrigley Field and Navy Pier in Chicago. Like it was 24 cities over the course of a year. 
uh, it was super fun and challenging. And I had to get a commercial driver license to haul that big thing around. Wow. Now be honest. When people came on the bus, though, you still told them to sit down and behave or it would go on their permanent record, right? Absolutely. And you would threaten to remove them as any parent at the head of any vehicle would to a misbehaving uh, person. Yes. Drunk with power. I love it. So this was right after you graduated from Michigan, right? Correct. You're a Michigan grad and I was delighted to be, because I'm a uniter, not a divider. I was glad to introduce you to every other Michigan grad who has been on the Marketing Book Podcast. So that was- Yeah, that was very kind of you. It's, it's like you, you do so much good work on this show. I mean, I'm a regular listener to it. Uh, sometimes I, I haven't decided whether I like listening to your interviews before I read the person's book or after reading the person's book. I've done both. Uh, but it was very kind of you to to- a, you always offer this to listeners, by the way, reach out, tell me what you're thinking about or worried about or working on, and I'll recommend some books to you. And in this case, you just introduced me to a few other awesome professionals, and I had a couple of really good conversations there. Well, every book by a mission grad on the Marketing Book Podcast is an excellent book. So I don't know what you all are doing there, but... Um it's, uh, it's worked out well. So any Michigan grads out there, particularly a Tom Brady, he's a very good looking guy. He went to Michigan. I'm sure he listens to the podcast because I have the best looking listeners uh, in, in all of podcast land. He's probably listening. So he's probably going to want to write a marketing book so he can, uh, he can come on the marketing book podcast. Now, I also interviewed you for a special episode I did about, you know, during the pandemic, during the lockdown. Uh, authors in quarantine getting cocktails, and it was you and Stephen, and it was great fun. I really uh, enjoyed that, and um, my family thanks you for uh, spending time with me because that was time that was like Doug daycare where they didn't have to sit and listen to me right. talk. Yeah, so yeah, you had a, you had full adult supervision elsewhere. <laughs> yes, that's right, that's right. So I read this book, believe it or not, while I was on jury duty. Mm, good time to read. Yeah, and of course, if you are reading a book while you're being considered for jury duty, that makes you rather suspicious anyway. Uh, so I was... <laughs> and then, of course, they ask you these questions to see if you might be a good and impartial juror. And once again, when we went to the first break, before they had even picked the jury, <laughs> they came up to me and said, Mr. Burdett, you're, you're no longer needed here. <laughs> I never get picked for jury duty. So, you know, but I'll keep showing up every couple of years when they ask me to. So... What are you, you going to do? I want to read a quick excerpt from the very first page and then get into this book. I love the book. I hope this isn't the last book you and Stephen write because I am a big fan of your books, both books, and they have actually, they're extremely well written, very thoughtful, but also they inspire me to actually go do something. <laughs> which I'm so happy to hear that. It's like, you know, I started doing more personal videos once again, and, you know, it's funny, I still attend uh, sales training once a week, if I can, uh, Sandler training, and I sometimes is the only one that have, have used personal videos, and this is a class full of salespeople, and I send them all a link to our interview, and I say, you guys, really, I think you ought to look into this. And uh, we're going to talk in a minute about the, the resistance to adoption of personal video in, in, in sales. But it's, um, it's interesting. It's really, it's really stuck with me. So let me just read this one uh, section from the, from the introduction. We have a problem that hasn't had a name. As a consequence, we don't understand it well. But it's costing us more than we can measure. 
as individuals, as businesses, and as a society. Though it involves our technology, the problem is a human one. People cause it. People pay for its consequences. And of course, people can solve it. The solution requires us to put people first and allows us to exceed our goals and be proud of how we do it. We propose an innovation in the way we communicate and connect with each other every single day. Ethan Butte, what's that innovation? Uh, We call that innovation human-centered communication. It's essentially taking the principles of human-centered design and applying them to our daily digital communication for a wide variety of reasons that I'm sure we'll touch on through our conversation. And and if you want to think about it even more simply, this is basic golden rule or even platinum rule thinking in the context of all of the messages and experiences that we're creating and delivering for people every single day. I think we take so much for granted. I think we operate by default. Uh, I think there are some industrially minded norms in business culture uh, that lead to some of the some of the problems that we're talking about. The problem that hasn't had a name, of course, is digital pollution. Yes, which is in the subtitle. But let's step back for a minute. You mentioned the golden rule. Explain, remind folks what the golden rule is and then what the platinum rule is. Oh, sure. Yeah. So the golden rule should be familiar to most people. It's present in basically every single religion, every single philosophical system. Uh, and it's and it's stated in a variety of different ways, but a common one would be treat others as you would prefer to be treated. Mm-hmm. Um, es- essentially do unto others as you would have done unto you. Some do it with a, a negative, which is do not do unto others as you would not have done unto you, et cetera. But we all get the point. It's like, why do we do things to other people that we would hate for them to do to us, to say to us, to, you know, just the way that we think about and treat other people. So that's the golden rule. Um, and again, it's, it's, millennia old and it's present in every thought system that tries to define why we're here and how we're supposed to live. Uh, So I think that's pretty fundamental to the human experience. The platinum rule, uh, I don't know the origin of that, but it's, um, it's just an evolution of it that says treat others as they prefer to be treated. Mm. And so when we think about all the technology available to us today, um, including something as crude or simple as notes in your CRM, we know how individual people want to be treated. We know that of our best customers. We know it of our most valued team members, but we can know this about more other people. And I think if we find ways to have systems capture and communicate that information back to us as we're interacting with people, uh, we can treat them in very unique and specific ways that improve customer experience, improve employee experience, and give a bit more meaning and value to all of the work that we do. Yes, and you mentioned uh, a moment ago industrial, which for me signals quantity over quality, and we're going to talk about that as well. But I shared on LinkedIn a picture of your book in leading up to this interview, as I always do, so let folks know what's what's coming, and got quite a, quite a response. People are very interested in the book. And one other author, uh, Ann Janzer, who's been on the show three times, uh, she made a funny comment and said, you had me at digital pollution. <laughs> so right. I love that concept. And again, it's stuck in my head, which is never going to go away. And, and, and that's for good reasons. Explain digital pollution. What are the causes and what are the consequences of it? Sure. I'll give you a little three-part taxonomy. But before I do that, um, 
it's something we all know. It's been fun to have this conversation with people. And that's one of our primary goals with the book itself is just to create awareness and create a conversation around these two concepts. Digital pollution as a problem that we all know and understand and think about. We've described it differently. Um, sometimes we've become uh, blind or desensitized to it and we don't even think about it at all, but we'll catch ourselves performing automatic behavior to deal with it. And I'll get into that in a moment. And then, of course, the other one is human-centered communication. Just the idea that people understand what these words are and the, and the concepts that they're meant to represent um, would be a win for for us and all of us collectively, because I think it improves business culture. So digital pollution is any unwelcome digital distraction. And this could be some of the more nefarious things like ransomware, malware, phishing attacks, um, denial of service attacks that take down entire websites or systems. Like that's, we call that intentional pollution. It's intended to cause harm, to disrupt, to steal money, whatever the case may be. It's highly intentional. On the other end of this kind of three-part system is innocent digital pollution. I think of this, do you remember, Douglas, the emails that your aunt or uncle or grandparent or parent or somebody else would for you? They're, they're basically email chain letters, right? And it was like, hey, if, if you want good luck for the next two weeks, forward this email oh, to yeah, the next yeah. three people. And you're, you're like, that's a very old version of innocent digital pollution. I'm on, uh, uh, I, I volunteer time with a particular organization and an email will go out to 24 of us and two or three people will start doing a reply all. Now, the <sighs> question that was asked in the initial email was, what do you need or will you be there? We don't all need to know what all of the other people are doing. And yet you start this reply all and all of a sudden, you know, your phone is lighting up or your inbox is lighting up and you have all these emails that you don't need. Like, I don't, I don't need to know what anyone else thinks or what anyone else is doing. It's just not relevant. And it wasn't part of the original email. Um, that's another one or group text messages or uh, LinkedIn group messages. Like you wind up in these, in these situations where it's perfectly innocent. Mm -hmm. This could also be a, a typo or an autocorrect on a text message where you think someone meant something that they didn't mean. And it takes a while to resolve. It's like all of this stuff slows us down. It confuses us. It frustrates us. It annoys us, but there's no malintent at all. It's innocent pollution. And in the, the guts of this book and the guts of what we can do to improve the state of business culture and frankly, the effectiveness uh, of our businesses overall, our long-term reputation and our peace of mind is in this big fat middle category, consequential digital pollution. And it goes back to what you just said, which is industrial quantity over quality. Consequential digital pollution is a consequence of an activity or an experience or a message that was designed to create or deliver value, but the way that it's done is so annoying or frustrating or lazy or sloppy or selfish that it tends to turn a lot of people off and create pollution for them. Uh, last note on pollution, it's, it's completely subjective. You can do everything we prescribe in the book. You can do all the things that come to mind and come to heart when you really reflect on how to be your best self and reaching out to people in a business context. You can take a human-centered approach to your communication and still someone on the receiving end of that message or experience may subjectively decide that what you have provided them is in fact digital pollution. This is completely subjective and up to each recipient. 
I want to add to that by mentioning something from page 191, which is the chapter where you featured Dan Tyre from HubSpot. And he's talking about polluting LinkedIn, in this case, with uh, bots and automation and spam. And he says, do you know what they're doing? They're destroying their potential to work with you. They're crushing their brand, he cautions. He even compares them to poorly behaved dogs, saying they are worse than spammers because they asked you to invite them into your trusted circle, and then they peed all over your leg. They threw up in your lap. No one wants that. (laughs) And I could just hear Dan Tyre uh, saying that. So there's one other thing I want to ask about from the beginning of the book, which I found very interesting. It's actually on page three, where you say, many people suggest that attention is the currency of our economy, but it's not. Trust is. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I think that passage goes on to say that trust is both grease and glue. It accelerates anything that's happening. Where trust is present, things go faster. And where trust is present, good things, good people, good outcomes stick. And so there's a lot of interest in attention, but attention is just a necessary precursor. And this kind of ties into the theme of the book in terms of, you know, if our only goal with our outreach is to get attention, we're not going far enough and it's not going to produce long-term sustainable results. Yes. If and it- I hear that a lot. I saw so people say, no, we're in the attention economy. And I know what people mean. They mean well. But I found that very interesting. You say it's, it's not really about attention. It's about trust. Attention is a necessary precursor to trust, engagement, which could be replies or responses or whatever the engagement might be, um, ultimately to reputation and sustained reputation. So high goal here. One of the reasons we need to be very clear about where we are creating consequential pollution, even if it's not our intent, is that over the long run, not only are we training people what to expect of us and our name and our brand name and our logo, however we're presented in a direct message, in uh, in a social feed, in any spot that we show up in digital, virtual, or online space, we're training not just the people to respond favorably or disfavorably. uh, We're also training the algorithms through those people. Those algorithms will increasingly control who sees what and when. And so if we're constantly seeking attention, without thinking more deeply about trust and engagement and reputation, then we're training people and as a consequence machines that we're not worth their time and attention in the first place. And so we're going to diminish our ability to reach people in the future, including people that actually need and want to hear from us. And so, you know, it's easy to overlook this and say, ah, you know what? So what? You know, we increased our click rate from, you know, 2.9 to 3.3%. We're winning. Uh, But that's just such a myopic view. Uh, Congratulations on the gain, but it's a myopic view that I think will, I don't know when exactly it's going to catch up with us, but that approach is going to catch up with us. Yes. And it made me think of maybe even a low level marketer who's being asked to produce some sort of content, how they could try to work into the conversation. How are we, how is this going to build trust? Even if we do get their attention, just something to, something to think about. So Ethan, why? Video. Why is video so good for human-centered communication? It's not the only way to create and deliver it, but it helps because it overcomes so many of the shortcomings of operating virtually. Which are? 
couple key ones. One is visual. The other is emotional. And as a consequence, when we can use more video, whether it's live, whether it's recorded, uh, whether it's one way or two way, whether it's a group meeting or it's a one on one meeting in all of these cases, when we can use more video, our intent is more clear. Our tone is more clear. Our message is better understood. And this intent, the purpose, the motivation, this is what moves people to engage or disengage with us. So when we are relying on faceless typed out text alone and other modes of communication that are not as visual or emotionally charged as video is, we're leaving it up to other people to make assumptions about who we are, what we care about, why we reached out in the first place, whether we have their best interest in mind, et cetera. And so if you are an insincere person who is truly selfish and you just want to get yours, um, go ahead and continue using <laughs> uh, non-video communication because video will give away sincerity and intent where, you know, I, that's going to be a benefit for me and the people on my team uh, and for a lot of the other people that I work with. And yet we overlook that opportunity um, and wind up, again, leaving it up to other people to figure out what we intend, how we're motivated and whether or not we're actually there to serve. Yes, and I noticed in the chapter that features Dan Hill, he mentioned, if there's no emotion, then there's no action. If there's Correct. no emotion, there's no action. And also, um, it just seems like the like if it's the one thing you do differently, if you could start using video, it would help tremendously. And not to keep talking about Dan Tyre, but I'm a Dan Tyre fan. He mentions that video messages are the biggest transformation in prospecting in 30 years. Just, just amazing. But um, let's go back and talk about the the pillars of human-centered communication. You you write that there are four of them. I was wondering if you could touch on those. Sure, they are guidance, identification, verification, and engagement. Uh, and as a consequence, when you when you look at this uh, online or on the pages of the book, there's also uh, relationships at, in, in the middle. So guidance. You know, it's one of the reasons we rounded up 11 of our expert friends, you've already been kind enough to name several of them, is, you know, we want to provide guidance to people because this is, you know, it seems intuitive. Someone like my wife, you know, as I was talking about writing this book, she goes, well, doesn't everyone communicate in a human-centered way? I'm like, A, not everyone is as thoughtful and empathetic as you in general, and B, a lot of people wind up in circumstances that have them behave in ways that are consistent with what the organization or the system or the process needs that they would never do if they were acting on their own accord, um, which is something we need to be sensitive to. And I love that you mentioned kind of like a, a, a frontline, you know, uh, kind of green marketer who is being asked to do things that probably go against their instinct, like... I hate when going to the golden rule. I hate when people do this to me. Why am I now doing this to these, you know, 200 or 2000 or 20,000 people? So, um, you know, we, we leaned on, uh, many of our expert friends in order to round out the guidance. How can we be better? What can we be doing? What does this look like in real life? Um, uh, because this idea of moving toward a more human centered approach to our communication, um, some of it seems natural to us, but again, we're fighting against some tides in business culture in general and to particularly scaled systems and scaled processes that want uniformity, conformity, um, homogenous treatment, and some of these other things that don't value people as people um, as well as they could, should, would. So guidance is the first pillar. 
identity uh, and identification is the second pillar. This idea of who we are matters. What we represent matters. The idea that people can feel more connected to us matters, especially uh, because we've been stripped from so many of our messages and experiences online. And so restoring identity. The next is verification. Now this starts um, calling to that, that intentional pollution a little bit. So even the, even the most right thinking, right acting, uh, you know, sincere, thoughtful person who is, you know, they don't need a million customers. They only need 10 really good ones. And so they can actually afford to do all of these over the top, really, you know, platinum rule treatments of people all of the time. Even a well-meaning person gets caught up in pollution because the space, of course, we all know that it's noisy, uh, but this polluted piece means that people no longer give us the benefit of the doubt. We need to be very clear about, again, our identity and our motivation, our intent, our message, our sincerity, our enthusiasm, et cetera. And so we can use video in particular to verify this because there's no faking it. Um, people can see it on us. They can feel it on us. And so the, the more we can verify that we are who we say we are, that the opportunity is the opportunity, that this link is safe to click, <laughs> that this is a safe email to reply to, that that attachment actually is something that's useful to you and it's not going to load a bunch of malware onto your computer. And so I hope people can start to see just in that quick pass that when we don't verify ourselves and our motivations and the opportunities we're presenting to people, that we can very easily look and sound and feel like a lot of these things that are truly dangerous. And so verification and then engagement, that's the whole purpose of communication in the first place. Yes, there are a lot of text messages and even phone calls and short conversations and notes that we send to, uh, to one another that are just about communicating a piece of information so that someone has it. But even that is heard, got it, confirmed see you then, right? There's a, there's an exchange on mm -hmm. it. Ultimately though, a lot of this is, um, is it's about long-term relationship. Any healthy business in my view is based on long-term relationship with the various stakeholders in the business. And so we want to create engagement with these. And again, as we talked through a, a few minutes ago, attention, trust, engagement, reputation is, is a very, very basic model. We don't break it down explicitly in the book, but engagement is, is the goal of so much of this work that we're doing. So we need to make it easy for people to know how, why, when to engage. And then at the middle is relationships. And if you put that together in your head, it spells give or giver. I see what you did there. Yep. Guidance, identity, verification, engagement makes for the relationship. Now you just mentioned keeping a customer long-term. And I think we could say that means maybe beyond that first sale. So back to jury duty. So when I was on jury duty, I was sitting there reading a book, which was one strike against me for the lawyers. Perfect. And I was also wearing a bow tie, which would probably be a strike against me for almost anything. But as my attorney friend said, oh yeah, wear a suit, you'll never get picked. You know, it's just one of the little uh, extras you get by listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. You know, there's no extra charge for these tips. So let's talk about bow ties and Aida. And when I say Aida, I don't mean the Verdi Opera. Remind listeners what the traditional sales funnel is and then what a better paradigm is. 
Yeah, people will use a variety of different language, but the common one is the one you mentioned. It's awareness, interest, decision, and action. And a sales and marketing funnel is designed to produce that action, uh, which is typically the sale or the credit card swipe or the signed contract or whatever the commitment is. But I think, I hate using the term, but modern businesses would move beyond the sales and marketing funnel because we all know you don't just get the credit card or get the signed contract or get the invoice paid and then just throw them over the fence and hope that the customer service and customer success and customer care team can figure out who they are, what they need and keep them around for a long time. You know, this obviously all needs to work together. And when we have an eye to that from the get-go with something more like the bow tie funnel and well done, by the way, to tie your own style choices into this conversation, the bow tie funnel puts commitment at the center. It essentially takes a traditional sales and marketing funnel, lays it on its side, has the commitment in the middle as the knot of the bow tie. And then there's the other half of it, which involves onboarding impact growth, and then ultimately a growth loop. And so when we view the customer experience or the customer life cycle or the funnel as this holistic thing that this is a key idea in the bow tie funnel, recurring revenue is a consequence of recurring impact. <laughs> this this means that if we're thinking about impact from the get-go, then we're much more human-centric and customer-centric from the get-go. It means we're designing everything to get the right customers to the point of commitment and to get them to impact and recurring impact as quickly as possible because all of us are moving towards subscription models. And those of us who aren't still have a form of kind of a subscription model in terms of repeat and referral business. Um, it, it operates on the same dynamics of trust and value and impact. Yeah, most of the time, the revenue is in keeping the customers after you spend all that trying to get them. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, we, first of all, you can do anything by subscription now. Um, obviously, some services require it, but even things that don't like t-shirts and underwear, you can get on subscription now. It's crazy. Um, and you so- can subscribe to having Earth moved. In the book, uh, Subscribe by Teen Zwo, he talked about how some of these uh, manufacturers of large earth-moving equipment, you don't necessarily have to buy that equipment now. They will, You will simply subscribe to having a certain number of cubic tons or yards or whatever moved, because that's really the ultimate thing that they want. Right, is, the problem solved. Right. I don't need heavy equipment, and I don't need to hire heavy I just need the earth. I just need the dirt moved. Perfect. <laughs> Such a great example. And uh, so anyway, um, that whole thing, you're talking about the heart of chapter three, which features Jaco Vanderkoy, uh, founder of Winning by Design, which is kind of a sales engineering, sales architecture firm, uh, amazing company. And uh, he's just a really, really insightful person. He's the one that turned Steve and I on to uh, the bow tie funnel in the first place. And I find myself, you know, in the context of the work I do specifically with BombBomb, teaching people to use video messages across the customer life cycle and the employee life cycle. Uh, you can also apply it in your own personal network or business network. I find the model super helpful be for mapping use cases. You know, essentially across your entire relationship with someone, you have opportunities to be more personal, clear, and human using a video message at these points. But in the context of this book, um, you know, th that still applies, but we're just essentially saying, if you're still using this model, it's completely broken. And here are all the reasons why. It's just short-sighted in its yesterday's model 
Um, and it, we're certainly not the first people to say that, but it's an idea I definitely wanted to pile on and Jocko helped us do that. And I'm glad you did. And it's uh, something that's worth mentioning. Even, <clears throat> again, I'm thinking of a marketer drawing a bow tie on the board and saying, look, <laughs> folks, we got to be focusing on the right side. And I've seen it mentioned in uh, Joseph Jaffe's book, uh, Zero Paid Media. And then also uh, John Jantz talks about it. So I, I, I am so, I was heartened when I saw that you all mentioned it too. That the more that we can talk about this, that concept rather than, you know, just getting the customer and then and moving on to the next one, the better. So let's move on. I interviewed Matthew Sweezy about his excellent book, The Context Marketing Revolution, How to Motivate, Loved it. How to Motivate Buyers in the Age of Infinite Media. That was episode 273 for those uh, keeping a tote board at home. And I also interviewed him for Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. So uh, I've had adult beverages with him and you and Stephen. And did you know that he owns a brewery in Atlanta? I do. It's called Eventide. And it was the first question I asked him when I hosted him on, on the Customer Experience Podcast, because I was like, you know, tell me more about this. And he was like, well, any marketer should have an alcohol brand in their portfolio. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. But more important than that, Ethan Butte, did you know that his Twitter handle is Ms. Wheezy? <laughs> I did. He pointed that out to M S W E E Z E Y. So I just thought that's a that's pretty funny. But I loved his book, and he talked about the and you all mentioned it too. This this point about uh, two thousand eight or so when it was determined. Looking back, kind of like crossing the equator. Looking back, it was determined that that particular day in the summer that summer day, more content was created by individuals by, than by companies on on the internet. And that really set a, a great reference point for me. But I was wondering if you could talk, and, and the reason that's such an important concept, and it's why the, it's in the subtitle of his book, is to help people understand <laughs> that, you know, like we talked about, it's not just about attention, it's about trust. And there is so much, so much noise out there that I don't think a lot of companies understand that. But can you talk about what he discussed in terms of uh, noise and attention and, and trust? Yes, absolutely. And we we touched on it a little bit already, and he is a great person to bring in on this. We also talked a bit about customer experience and employee experience mm -hmm. uh, in this chapter. But this noise piece is really, really interesting because, you know, everyone will nod their head when they, when, gosh, it sure is noisy online, right? It's harder to, it's harder to reach people and get attention, et cetera. But and, they, they, they nod their heads sort of intellectually, like, yes, I, I, I grasp that concept, but then I'm right, sure but, they, but, they understand. Yeah. What does it mean to me besides that I kind of hate going? going to my inbox or I dread looking at my LinkedIn messages. Um, and the, the other thing that's happened since that date um, that, that Matt found through research is that, you know, we have a lot more machines giving us noise, things that we're asking for, alerts from our, you know, health and fitness devices, alerts from our doorbells or our in-home or out-of-home cameras, like all of these things are communicating with us all the time in a variety of ways, creating a lot of noise. And, and the idea is that, you know, noise is neither good nor bad. I mean, I think we would all say less noise is better, but you know, that's why we wanted to charge it up and talk with them a bit about where does noise become pollution? That's when we get into the subjectivity piece. And it ties into his idea of context marketing because you and I could get the exact same message from the exact same company from the exact same for, for the exact same reason at the exact same time. And 
I could feel like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. I'm so glad I got this. But you could say, this is absolute garbage and market for abuse or unsubscribe or just swipe and delete it, you know, whatever the case may be. However, if you got that same message a month earlier or a year later, you might feel differently about it. Or if it came from a different um, address or person, or if they had changed some of the, uh, you know, opening lines in the message, uh, or if you had gotten up on the happy side of the bed instead of the cranky <laughs> side of the bed that day, right? So this context piece that Matt talks about in his book, he's talked about on this podcast, he's talked about on the podcast that I host, this context piece is so key to the subjective decisions that people are making about whether or not to interact and engage. And trust, of course, is that key component. I, I think I'll probably misquote him here, but I think Matthew said something like, trust is the currency of human relationships, you know, taking it even beyond the economy, because what is the economy, but, you know, human relationships with some kind of a commercial overtone or undertone, um, you know, he made an even bigger statement about trust. And so when we think about what we're putting in front of people, when, why, and how, uh, what it looks like, what it feels like, why they're getting it and someone next to them isn't, um, and, and all of these elements, when we think about the context of when and how and why we're trying to help and serve people, trust really should underpin a lot of our decision-making. Yes, and Ethan, you are correct. It was on page 83, trust is the currency of human relationships. That's just a shout-out to the folks playing the, <laughs> the home game. Yeah. Believe it or not, I hear from folks that will listen to an interview, and then they'll go buy the book, and then they'll listen to it again. So that's why I'm, I'm getting even better at calling out the specific page numbers. So Moving on to uh, the chapter that features Adam Contos, I wanted to ask you to explain one line in there that I thought was very interesting on page 115. You write, online, a lack of emotional discipline often results in digital pollution. Explain what you mean there. So good. So Adam Contos is the CEO of Remax. He, Steve and I have known him for years, really smart guy. And I really loved writing this chapter uh, based on some of the things that he shared with us. And he talks about this concept of, you know, we all know emotional intelligence doesn't mean that we all operate uh, in accordance with it or possess it or demonstrate it. Uh, but he also steps it up to, to emotional brilliance, which includes emotional intelligence and emotional maturity. And this maturity piece is the ability to uh, make right actions in the moment, to have that layer of discipline there. And so I think so often when we think about, you know, some of the worst things about social media, mainstream social media, something like Facebook, you know, LinkedIn is a much more polite environment. You look at it and you see very, very obviously that people are responding in the moment. And sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's blatant and intentional, like people just trolling or flaming other people. But in a lot of cases, it's this lack of emotional maturity and lack of emotional brilliance where they're going on their first instinct and first impulse. And I know that when I was a less mature person and a less mature professional, in professional settings, whether it's live in a meeting or whether it's responding to an email, that I've gone on my own first instinct. And not only is that, that not my best look, not only is that not in my long-term interest for, the, for that relationship or even that situation, it promotes a culture through experience by experience 
that none of us really wants. It's not healthy. It's not productive. We can be better and we must do better. And so, you know, I, I don't think that anyone would find it uh, revolutionary to think, you know, it goes back to letter writing, right? Like you write that letter to somebody about a situation you're hot on. It's like, hey, before you lick that envelope and drop it in the mailbox, uh, maybe sleep on it and read it the <laughs> next day, right? And then then we extend it to email, et cetera. And so, well, you know, what do you, what we're getting at here is these channels are already emotionally impoverished, right? They don't they don't communicate uh, even. A, a fraction of the range of human expression and human emotion. They're just limited in their ability to convey that on our behalf. So when you couple that with, you know, first reaction, be it positive or negative. I mean, my mind immediately went to the negative because those are the most harmful uh, circumstances. Um, I just a little bit more patience, a little bit more maturity and a little bit more empathy um, thinking about that other person and thinking about where they're coming from, thinking about why you wound up reacting that way in the moment and being clear and honest with yourself prior to response will certainly reduce uh, pollution. Yes. And it's funny you mentioned a lack of emotional maturity because that jogged my memory. That's why the judge threw me out of consideration for mm -hmm. uh, the jury. He said, Mr. Burdett, you clearly have demonstrated a total lack of emotional maturity. But I hear that a lot from people. So, yeah. you know, there was another great, great, another great line in, in his, the chapter uh, about him where he, he wrote, video is not about what, video is about who. Which goes back to what you mentioned earlier. It's 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 very much about uh, verifying and connecting with that person on a uh, more personal basis. Video is not about what video is about. Who? Let's go on to the chapter eight, which featured Lauren Bailey, which is very much about sales. Really liked this chapter. Take us back. Where has the sales profession gone wrong, and what are some of the things that it can do to get back on track? Yeah, I think it goes to uh, where we were earlier, this industrial mindset, um, quantity over quality, some of the assumptions that we make and reading some of the books that are featured on your show and listening to people on your podcast and others. You know, again, this is this is something that we're all aware of, but haven't really taken on because I guess we don't have the courage or we don't want to put our job on the line to kind of disrupt mainstream business culture. But you hear stats like, um, you know, hey, now it takes 17 touches in order to get a response from a prospect. And that's up from just eight, four years ago, right? It's like, does it really take more than twice as many touches to get a reply? Or are we so lacking in targeting and clarity and quality of messaging that we just have to do more and more and more and more. And so this theme, by the way, of um, outcomes over activities, like more activity is not the answer to stuffing up your pipeline. You know, we could do the same thing with the pipeline. You don't necessarily need 5X pipeline to hit your revenue target a month from now if you just put better quality into the pipeline. The reason you need 5X is because you're only converting 20%, right? <laughs> right? When, when you know, I know people that are operating that tell stories about operating at 33% or 40%, and therefore you don't need to jam, you know, these like, 
you start trying to hit the pipeline goal and you start stuffing anything that'll fit in the pipeline goal. And so we do this, this goes up and down the sales and marketing chain. And so, uh, Lauren just does a really fantastic and passionate job. And by the way, for people who, uh, order the book, um, just email me book at bombomb.com and I'll send you, send you, uh, some digital bonuses, including the full interviews that we did with all these people. I think it's like 15 or 16 hours of interviews and, Lauren spent, I think, 90 minutes with Steve and me. And then, of course, we had follow-up afterward as we were developing and writing the chapter. But um, she goes on a very, very strong, clear, passionate, wonderful I think she used the word rant, so I'll use it too. I wouldn't characterize it as such because of the negative connotations. But, you know, it's essentially you know, when we start stuffing a bunch of venture capital into these businesses with unrealistic demands then we start getting activity based and, and we start cranking through people and the people are asked to do repetitive activities, dehumanizing work like they were doing in factories in the early 1800s, you know, where they're essentially just truly cogs in the machine. And, you know, if they wind up not working out, you just toss them and, and throw another log onto the fire and hope that they stick. And so she really goes into and we we I feel like I captured the spirit of her argument and and uh experience uh, as a sales trainer and a sales management training person over over years um she has a ton of great experience as do all the people included in these conversations that we captured her argument pretty well in those pages mhm and i'm also going to include a link to your site where people can get uh, these bonuses, which I believe is bombbomb.com slash book bonus. Yeah. That, I mean, that'll take you into all the behind the scenes stuff in the book, yeah. bombbomb.com slash book or bombbomb.com slash book bonus. Terrific. Okay. So you work at BombBomb and uh, I want to make sure to drop a lot of value bombs. That's a term that uh, John Lee Dumas always used, dropping value sure. bombs. So uh, a couple couple things that, I mean, I just pulled out of here that were, uh, I think, very helpful. And I often say this to listeners as it relates to any book that's on the show, which is you don't have to do this stuff perfectly. You just have to do it a little bit better than your competition and get started, and you'll start seeing results right away. And she talks about just being 20% more human is a massive differentiator. Right. It, and it's it's so funny when I, you know, one of the questions I ask every guest on the podcast that I host is, you know, could you please give a nod or a shout out or a mention to a company or brand that you personally appreciate for the experience that they deliver for you as a customer, right? So they've, they've talked about their role inside their organization, um, creating and delivering better experiences for customers. Then I flip it and put them in the customer chair. And it's funny, the stories that you hear you occasionally hear some of those crazy over the top stories that become legend in, you know, books and stage presentations and this kind of a thing. Employee <laughs> yeah, trading you know, like Ritz manuals. Carlton or yeah. 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 And, and, and we do, we hear those, but it's so often it's just, they know what I like, right? Uh -huh. They recognize me when I come in the door, right? They just, people see me, hear me, understand me and appreciate me as a common theme under all of the responses that I get. And sometimes it comes from massive brands like, you know, Ritz Carlton or Southwest or Apple or Amazon or whatever. But a lot of the times it's also like Joe's pizza or cheetah coffee shop, you know, like the, the neighborhood store and, and really everything in between as well. You're, I'm mm -hmm. hearing a lot more of these kind of hybrid businesses where they are tech based, like the whole platform is tech based, something like a Peloton or a stitch fix, 
But there's also a human component to it. There's a human touch. There's a face and a voice and there's personalized service and value in there. That's another tension that we talk a lot about through this book, uh, Human Centered Communication. But that becomes a constant theme of like uh, blending those two experiences in ways that make people feel seen and heard and appreciated. Yeah. So don't look for the perfect. Just Get started in that direction, and, and you'll right. start to see 20% dramatic. 20% more human will differentiate you from almost everybody else. Yeah, another a tip she had in her chapter, and there's tips throughout the whole book, but it was one that I've done that really, really works well. She said, don't multitask when you're on a video call, except to take notes. And people can tell when you're, you're multitasking. But she says, make sure to ask permission to take notes so that you don't appear you know, unengaged. And I, I just think that that really, really works well. People really uh, seem to uh, appreciate that. Now, and she also said, don't use virtual backgrounds, but then Mario Martinez says, well, actually, you can use some if you use them strategically, like, a, you know, the logo of the company you're calling on or some other fun, fun things. But it's one of those church and state, or it's one of those things that will never uh, ultimately resolve. People are always going to be talking about the virtual backgrounds. I'm not a fan of them, uh, unless it, it's it's part of a a joke or, a, you know, like, let's say you're delivering a message about being preferring to be on the beach. Okay, yeah, I get it. That's why you have a picture of the beach in the background. But otherwise, they, I think they seem to be a little um, uh, deceptive. Now, I want to go back to, one last time, to uh, Dan Tyre, this, his chapter 13. And I've done training with Dan Tyre, because, I, you know, we use HubSpot, and they've trained some of their agency partners. And one of the many things that makes Dan such a character is that if you've done something that has really pleased him, he'll say he's going to buy you a breakfast sandwich. I don't know if he ever said that during his interview with you, but if you ever mention breakfast sandwich to Dan Tyre, you're going to break through. <laughs> he's always saying, Douglas, I'm going to buy you a breakfast sandwich next time I see you. You are a star pupil. That's right. That's right. But I want to just read this one uh, bit from page 189 where uh, you write, my bold prediction for the past four years has been that you'll get three video emails every day, says Dan Tyre, and it still doesn't happen. I am amazed. For years, Dan has been encouraged by the data about the efficacy of adding videos to emails. He'd also been experiencing those benefits himself. Over my first six or seven years at HubSpot, I got about 50% response rate to my calls and my emails, he shares. After incorporating human-centric video messages, it went up to 70% and then 80%. Now I'm at about 85%. Given the obvious effectiveness of the format, Dan expected that business professionals would race toward video email, quote, like a hungry man to a free buffet, end quote. Instead, his prediction did not come to pass back in 2017 or in any of the years since. I still don't get three a day. I don't even get three a week. I maybe get three a month, and two of them are from you guys, he says, playfully referring to Steve and me. So, Ethan, why do you think there is still so much uh, either unawareness or resistance to sales teams wanting to use video? Uh, I think there are three main forces. The first one is simple human vulnerability. People are uncomfortable. They don't like the way they look. They don't like the way they sound. They're not quite sure if they're doing right. Uh, and so, and I'm air quoting on doing it right because, <laughs> you know, the goal is to just be yourself. And again, to lead with your identity and to verify. In fact, if you you're know, too slick, that actually hurts. 
Absolutely it does. And so, so one is human vulnerability. Another one is just aversion to change, right? And so this goes to a, a manager or a team leader where maybe one or two practitioners are experimenting with it, but they don't feel like the lift because they have other priorities. They don't feel like finding a vendor, trying to get the team to implement it, assessing where they're going to start using videos, trying to decide how much to, you know, hem people in with a script versus liberate people to do what they think is the right thing. And can they trust their own team members to do it and all of that. And so one, so the second one is, you know, an aversion to essentially cultural and behavioral change, digital transformation, video transformation, or however you want to describe that. A, A lot of sales leaders and sales managers, and I'd say that of any leader or manager, you really have to have a super, super compelling case to say, I'm going to change the way that several of my team members operate every single day. And then the third one is in, and I think we knocked, I think we address all of these um, directly and indirectly throughout the book. The third one is essentially the way that it's been used. And at some level, the way that it's been sold by the various people that offer these products and services. I observe that most people are looking at video specifically for top of funnel and prospecting. I think people are using it as an attention gimmick. I think they're using it with a a, a myopic view of its purpose and value. And I think when people are buying it that way, when people are using it that way, when some of these pioneers are modeling it that way. Like a hack. Correct. And, and as companies start to try to sell it that way, because that's what people are responding to. Oh, I can boost my response rate on my cold emails. Um, you know, that, that that's become, it starts to look like a short term win because like anything, if as soon as X percent of people start doing it, it loses its effectiveness. If the only effectiveness you're looking for is the difference that it makes from what everyone else is doing. And again, this is the what piece, not the who piece to go back to your um, smart pull from that Adam Contos chapter. Like we see video, live video, recorded video, video and email, video by Zoom, video and LinkedIn messages, et cetera. This is a long-term thing. This is about connecting and communicating with people across time and distance um, in a better way than you would do it otherwise. Um which is faceless typed out text. And so I think when you take this long view and even Morgan Ingram, uh, who's featured in chapter 12, I think we called that one people first prospecting. And he has a mountain as does Dan Tyre's chapter, a mountain of video prospecting tips. He took care to say, and oh, by the way, that's just a little bit of how I use it. I also use it here, 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 Mm -hmm. and here. And here are some tips around that. And here's some of the results I've gotten out of it. And so it's this idea that, um, you know, people are treating it as a gimmick and a, as a hack and as a, in the end, as a consequence, then people expect it to be this magic potion or silver bullet. And when it fails to deliver on these unreasonable expectations, they throw it away and say, oh, I knew it. It never worked. Yes, that's right. That's right. Well, yeah. So it's like uh, Mark Schaefer. Uh, he'll, he'll, he talks about how, you know, a lot of marketing automation is simply there, is simply being used to annoy at scale. Perfect. (laughs) Exactly right. So true. So let me mention a couple other things here. You have a section, where uh, one chapter, Mario Martinez, and I wanted to quote from this and then go to the part about uh, the chapter on Vivica von Rosen. And again, we're really only skimming the surface, but Mario talks about how automation 
back to annoying at scale. Automation has created a situation where sellers believe that the right course of action is to spray and pray because sales leaders are managing an activity-based key performance indicator. And my daughter, who's a recent college grad, she has a sales job in New York City, and I've heard her say, oh, I got to hit my KPIs today, Dad. I can't talk. Then on... Uh, Vivica von Rosen's personal videos are extremely differentiating in part because everyone thinks quantity, not quality. If it takes five good opportunities to generate two closed deals, why blast a potentially polluting message to 5,000 people? Instead, Vivica recommends reaching out to 15 or 20 people in a high quality way to create those five opportunities. So, as it relates to Vivica Von Rosen, she had a great uh, model in here that I wanted you to talk about, which was on page 152, her, her PVC method, personalized uh, value and call to action. Can you explain that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's there. Uh, so, Mario and Vivica both are uh, co-founders at Vengresso, um, digital sales. Um, some people would call some aspects of what they do social selling. Mm -hmm. Vivica specifically teaches a selling on video course. Um, and so, one of the things that they teach pretty much in every class, but specific to a lot of outreach is, you know, personalized value call to action. And I think people will recognize those elements, no matter whether they use that language or other language, something Steve and I have taught is empathy value call to action. Uh, and it's similar. And this is the idea. Uh, and Dan Tyre has a formula for it. Morgan Ingram has a formula for it. And so it's essentially make these touches more personal beyond just, you know, slugging in some variable data, which we've all seen go comically bad. <laughs> right. You know, this, I've, there are so many. That's wonder a good point. First name. Exactly. Or, uh, you know, I, I have a number of jobs listed that aren't traditional jobs on LinkedIn, right? Like I, I created a page for rehumanize your business and, you know, made myself the author of it. I made a page for the customer experience. So, so they, they'll reach out to me with like job titles and company names that aren't real job titles or company names per se. Anyway, it's, it goes comically bad and it immediately tells us that this is, you know, impersonal machine driven stuff. That's not really for like, it just sends these signals. This goes back to where I was at the beginning of the conversation, these kind of automatic responses that we have in order to get through the noise in order to find what actually matters. We labor through this every single day in all of these channels. And, and so that's one of the signs is like, Oh, this is informing. And so, uh, when we can personalize, uh, add value, which is, you know, what is the purpose? What is the opportunity? Um, what do I have for you? Maybe I'm going to give it to you straight away in this message or experience, or I'm going to promise it to you if you engage and respond. Well, and um, to a know, lot of these people, I want to say, what is the value? Have you right, even thought yeah, about that? Right. right. Hey, I, I need to hit my quota. Right. Yeah. I've had that before too. I mean, we could actually just do an hour and a half just on silly polluting experiences. I, I agreed to take a sales call um, from a business development rep at a very large company because I was interested in the product offering. And I told him I could potentially influence a decision here, but I will not be the buyer of this. I'm inter I'm responding and I'm scheduling a meeting with you um, because, you know, and I was very explicit why. And he, we schedule the meeting and then he replies like an hour later to say, Hey, could we actually move it? three days earlier, even though we'd already gone through how those days aren't going to work. Could you move it a few days earlier? 
And it was because that was the last day of the month. I guarantee it. He said it wasn't, but I guarantee it was like, you already had the appointment, dude. Like people that keep selling after they've already sold, you know, like we've all witnessed that too. Like you have the appointment on the calendar. Why would you then try to double back? Well, it's so that you can hit your quota within the month of how many meetings you've set up and and executed. And so in any case, this, um, so not a lot of value for Ethan Butte there. No, like, why would I move it? We've already talked about what works and what doesn't work. And I've already given you 30 minutes that does work for me. It just happens to fall outside of the window that's of of benefit to you. In any case, personalized value, call to action, make it, again, this goes back to the idea of make it really easy for people to engage. When you do PVC really well, you're essentially doing another thing that I've taught for years in, in various channels is within 10 seconds of getting a message or experience presented online, whether it's an email or a message or someplace else, people should know why they got it, what's in it for them, and how to take you up on that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And if they can quickly assess that, then you're making it very, very easy for them to say, yes, yes, I'll click this link. Yes, I'll schedule a meeting. Yes, I'll reply. Yes, I'll make that personal introduction for you. Yes, I'll return that voicemail that that I've left unresponded for a few days now. Like The easier we can make it for other people, and I call this meeting people more than halfway, and it's a key premise of human-centered communication. If if the approach to even starting creating the message puts the other people first, has them in mind first, and you're designing it to make it easy for them to know why they got it, what's in it for them, and how to engage, you're meeting them over halfway, and you're so much more likely to get the response that you want. Yes, and if you meet them 51%, you'll still be meeting them more than just about anyone else. And uh, Morgan J. Ingram in his chapter, he has what you mentioned. Uh, he calls it 10-30-10, which is uh, a formula referring to the amount of time speaking to the reason for the video, the value proposition, and the call to action. So like 10 seconds, you know, the reason for your video, and then 30 seconds, the value proposition. What's in it for them? And then the last 10 seconds, that, you know, that, that call to action. Um, one other tip I want to offer, another value bomb, Mr. Bomb Bomb. If you smile more in video, it makes you look smarter. So I've been smiling like crazy, and it's really, uh, it's really helping a lot. Last thing I want to talk about was uh, Shep Hyken, who has been on the show recently for his new book, I'll Be Back. Great book. Uh, I'm such a fan of his. And on uh, page 163, he had something that just really interested me, and I know that every a salesperson would find this helpful, but not just salespeople, the marketing people. If you can start to zero in on some of these things as it relates to who your ideal customer profile is, it's great. And it's he talks about, he uses this on his discovery calls with a, a client interested in booking him for like a speech or a, a training project. And he talks about danger, opportunity, strengths, and future, which doesn't really spell, it's not really an acronym that works like a giver. But D-O-S-F, danger, opportunity, strengths, and future. Is that something you could explain in, in a little more detail? Sure. It's, uh, he specifically asks these questions uh, in order to understand the other person so that he can craft a customer-centric proposal <laughs> instead of just pulling something straight off the what? shelf. 
He wants to, of course, he works from a template or a boilerplate, but he customizes the same thing we should be doing with our sales scripts for that matter. Yeah, but and, these and, four things he zeroes in on, I just thought were ingenious. Yeah, so smart. Like, like what is bringing us, so danger, what is bringing us into conversation right now? Like, what's the threat to you or your business? Is it immediate? How acute is it? Is it something that you're anticipating in the future? I want to understand the danger. What happens if you don't do it? Right, yeah, very good. Yeah. And then, uh, And then opportunity is... What happens if we don't do this and or what happens if we do do this and or now I'm bleeding into the future a little bit, you know, a year from now, if we look back on having made this commitment and us proceeding, you know, what is going to make you say that that was one of the best decisions I made last year? And then, and then strengths is, you know, what, where, what strengths are we operating from right now? Like what's going well? well yeah. And, what are you doing that's working well? Yeah. And so he puts these pieces together and then he crafts a specific proposal. And then he also, again, I'm sure uh, asking permission to take notes on the call and then asking these specific questions. He also then sends a video with his proposal where he uses their own language back to them. And this mm. becomes so compelling, not just because he's using their language, but because he's demonstrating that he truly understands them. And then just a, a pro tip for people. If you are sent, no matter what the nature of the proposal is, where it falls on a customer life cycle, what the positive outcome is for you and the customer in your business, when you can send a video along with something like a contract or a proposal or an outline, not only are you bringing that thing to life, positioning yourself as the expert, being able to use people's words back to them so that they see you as an aligned partner already before they've ever made a formal commitment to you. You're also giving them something that they can forward to anyone else in the organization who may affect that decision. Mm. And you get to present that information yourself. You get to be yourself for people who never met you. They weren't on the sales call. They're probably not going to read the 12 page proposal. You can send them this little 90 second or two minute video where you're going through the danger, opportunity, strength, and future uh, dynamics. And they're like, gosh, this guy really understands us. This guy has really thought through what's in this proposal. It just casts light on the proposal in a different way. Mm -hmm. And it gives your champion or the person vetting or screening the opportunity, something they can easily forward to other decision makers inside the organization. And again, they feel like they know you before they ever met you. And they see you as an expert who is aligned with them and their problem and their opportunity. Oh, so true. So true. So, Ethan, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? That digital pollution is a pervasive problem and that rather than developing automatic responses to it and just assuming oh, that's the way that it is <laughs> um, and allowing ourselves to just live in this desensitized state around it, that we start demanding more of ourselves and the people around us, including the people who are creating it for us we're not going to win everybody over all at once. And we do it, you know, we tie it into uh, environmental and physical pollution in the opening chapter. Like, you know, we're never going to fully eliminate pollution, but certainly we've made strides since, you know, the Cuyahoga river was on fire and some of these other more um, blatant and horrible situations, but we still have a long way to go. Um, and it's the same thing with digital pollution, except that it's very early stages. 
And so I think if, if people start identifying it, they start using the language, they start sharing examples with the people around them. When we start getting real from a golden rule perspective of things we're doing to others that we don't like ourselves, I think that would be a great takeaway that people just start to identify this. And I think even if you don't get into all the details of how to be more human centered in your communication and you just identify pollution and start acting in ways that you deem as non-polluting, and having these conversations with your teammates and even your customers and people in your professional network, that would be a huge win because it would start to change the conversation and it would stop accepting a subpar status quo. Amen. You've heard the term commission breath before in the sales Absolute world. love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that it, digital pollution reminds me of that. I mean, commission breath, you know, if you were to say that to somebody trying to sell to, to you, I don't know, maybe if they have commission breath, they won't understand it. <laughs> Like somebody with bad breath who doesn't know they have bad breath. Right. But digital pollution reminds me of the same thing. And I think over in the in the future, I hope people will be more uh, sensitive to that and how you know uncouth it is. So what's just one thing a listener could do today? Just one thing today to put in action one of the many ideas from the book or one that we've talked about. Sure. Uh, and I just want to add one thing to that previous response. You know, you could undertake all of this on moral grounds. It's just the right thing to do. You know it's the right thing to do, and you just need to figure out how to do it and have the courage to do it. But this is a competitive opportunity as well. Oh, um, yes. and, and, I, and I think people that, you know, you, again, are, are just our, pa- our back and forth on the 20% more human passage from Lauren Bailey kind uh-huh. of emphasize that. I just didn't want to miss that point. The one thing to do today is, again, start screenshotting. Start screenshotting, start forwarding, start sharing, drop these into Slack internally. We've been doing that at BombBomb and it's been pretty fun, like things that we encounter. And even in within your own organization. Correct. Yeah. So, so we're doing it with things that we encounter, but then immediately then it becomes a conversation about what we're doing. Again, this kind of golden rule, platinum rule thing. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, it, it's not perfect. We cannot deliver. We cannot afford to deliver. We cannot profitably deliver platinum rule treatment for every customer and every business. It's just unrealistic, but we can start making strides in that direction. And so something you can do today is to introduce this word digital pollution to the people that you work with most closely and start screenshotting and or forwarding and or sharing, copy pasting, you know, ideal, ideally in a closed channel. The goal isn't to shame people. The goal is to create awareness, to create conversation, to get reflective about what we're doing, what is good or bad about this. Why do you feel that this is pollution? Again, going to the subjective dynamic, we have debates internally about examples that are like, you know, I just don't see it that way. Or I actually got that too. And I liked it. Right. And so (laughs) these are just productive conversations to be having, because again, if you want to build a long-term reputation with people and machines and enjoy all the downstream benefits of that, you have to start doing this today. So well said. Last question. Are there any uh, recent or upcoming books that now that you have time to read books again, uh, that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Sure. Um, I'll do this as a shameless plug, and I might miss a couple. You've already mentioned a couple of the folks who you've had on your podcast for some of the great books that they wrote, Matthew Sweezy, Dan Tyre come to mind, Dan Hill. But recently released or coming very soon, Shep Hikens, I'll Be Back. You mentioned that one, so I'm looking forward to that. 
Well, you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that because when I interviewed Shep Hyken, I asked him the same question. He says, oh, you've got to check out human-centered communication. <laughs> it's awesome. Shep is just, by the way, such a good dude. I've read four oh, of his books and they're yeah. outstanding, but any opportunity to interact with him, he's just a, a, a rock-solid human being who Wonderful is person. insanely generous. Yeah. Adam Kanto, CEO of Remax, featured in chapter seven of this book, has a book coming out from Wiley called Start With a Win. And Julie Hansen, who's featured in chapter six, a professional actor and salesperson turned video sales trainer, has a new book coming out called Look Me in the Eye. And that one is very aligned with both Rehumanize Your Business and Human-Centered Communication. We're really pleased to have uh, Julie in on this conversation too. So books coming out from some of the people featured in this book. Ethan Butte, those are not shameless plugs. I appreciate you mentioning them, and I look forward to uh, learning more about those books beyond uh, Sheps, which I've, I've read and thoroughly enjoyed. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable, including all the books that you've mentioned, uh, your site, uh, your LinkedIn profile, and I have a big favor to ask of you, the listener. If you would, please reach out to Ethan Butte and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. There are many ways to reach out to him, but he would really love it if you would contact him and thank him. As I always like to say, there's over a million podcasts out there, and Ethan has been very generous with his time here. And honestly, if you like making people happy, guests on the Marketing Book Podcast get so excited when they hear from somebody that's listened to the interview and these books, often they're a lifetime in the writing, and he's worked very hard on this, and it's a terrific book. And also, to you, the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. Final quote, as it is with our physical environment and natural capital, so it is with our digital environments and social capital. We can dehumanize ourselves and others with digital pollution, or we can work in service of people, not just to get rich, but also to be rich. We hope your investment of time and attention here has been rewarded. We hope that you'll join us in the conversation, exploration, and restoration that is human-centered communication. The name of the book is Human-Centered Communication, A Business Case Against Digital Pollution. The authors are Ethan Butte and Stephen Passanelli. Ethan, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you very much. Well done, as always. I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate the opportunity. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. 